Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Hometown Stories. It means a lot to us. If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you shared us with a friend, left us a review, or subscribed to Hometown Stories. That way, you basically get first dibs as soon as we release a new episode. You can also email us at hometownstories at wdbj7.com. We'd love to hear your hometown story. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Globally, COVID-19-based restrictions are easing up as case counts seem to be stabilizing. So what will the future of this pandemic look like? What's next for us as we continue to fight back against COVID-19? Those are the questions we posed to Dr. William Petrie, a leader at the University of Virginia's Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health. You may recognize Dr. Petrie from previous episodes of Hometown Stories. This conversation originally appeared on the WDBJ7 Plus digital news desk. Dr. Petrie, thanks for joining us. Oh, Leanna, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. First of all, let's take a snapshot in time. Um, what are we seeing globally as far as the activity of COVID-19 right now? Well, Leanna, we're still in a high transmission period, so don't let your guard down yet. I think it's too early to not wear a mask like when you're inside in a public place. Uh, in, the, in the U.S. in the last couple of days, we've had about 100,000 cases every day of, of Omicron and uh, unfortunately almost 2,000 deaths. But I think that the, on the horizon, um, we will be out of this pandemic phase very shortly. I would think like within weeks or, or uh, as short as, as a month from now. You know, I'd like to us to go back even farther in time, even past polio. When COVID-19 began to spread in 2020, there were a lot of comparisons to the Spanish flu of the, uh, I guess it was 1918-1919 period. What, what do you think we learned in a hundred year span? Was there anything that was learned from that time period that informed the way that we handled COVID-19? Yes, well, I think that yeah, the impact of science has been absolutely enormous uh, for, for, for COVID-19. So, you know, for the flu pandemic in 1919, we really didn't even know that it was a virus. And we sort of suspected that it might be transmitted in a respiratory route. And we didn't understand that a lot of people were dying, not from the virus infection, but from secondary bacterial infection. So there was like a lot to learn that we now understand. And that helped us with, with COVID-19 understanding very early on that, that, that it was a, a respiratory virus, that it was spread predominantly through aerosol. So you remember like early in the pandemic, even that was like being debated, but we understand that clearly now. And the ability to so rapidly go to making a vaccine and now therapeutics 
and proof that a lot of the protective public health measures that aren't terribly sexy, like wearing a mask indoors in public places, social distancing and hand washing, uh, were effective. You know, and effective like not only for uh, COVID nineteen, but you know, you and I were talking about polio a while back. Polio cases are at a historic low. Influenza, we saw a little bit of the influenza epidemic this year, but like way, way more modest than we had seen before all the social distancing. So I think a, a lot um, has, has been learned in a hundred years and gosh, a lot has been learned about COVID-19 in the last two years. It's really like quite astounding to me. And I do wanna talk about, you know, how we take what we learned from this pandemic and uh, apply it to maybe if and perhaps when this will happen again in the future. But uh, first I, I wanna ask, what concerns you maybe at this point with COVID? Um, you know, you still mentioned that we can't let our guard down just yet, that there is still some, uh, still high transmission. Um, is there anything about, you know, the way that COVID has been addressed or how we will continue to address it that maybe still concerns you? And then on the flip side as well, um, you know, what, what is working well? What gives you hope? Oh, sure. So yeah, I'll start with like like the, the glass half full first um, that, um, we, we were not where we need to be with, with, with vaccination. And we, we've all heard this. Right now, we only have 25% of children five to 11 years of age are, are vaccinated. We're doing much better on the people my age. And so if you're 65 and older, it's almost 90% of Americans are vaccinated. And so that's and so that gets the glass half full. The people who are most vulnerable to this infection, the elderly, are the best protected as far as vaccination. Children though, unfortunately can, can die from this uh, infection, can be hospitalized. Um, and so it, it concerns me like that, that we're not seeing better vaccine uptake in the five to 11 year olds. Concerns me that we don't have a vaccine yet for uh, under age five. But, but there's a lot to be very optimistic about. Um, first of all, there's almost, no one, if you do the math, who uh, has not either been vaccinated or has had COVID now. You know, the, the latest numbers from the CDC are there's 250 million Americans have been vaccinated, which is wonderful. 80 million Americans have had COVID-19, which is terrible. Um, and you know, a mil almost a million deaths now. So it's a very, very tragic impact. But if you add those two numbers together, and of course you can't exactly do that because there are people who have been vaccinated and had breakthrough, but 250 million vaccinated, 80 million infected, that's the, that's the population of the US right there, 330 million people. So we are at the highest levels of immunity to this infection that we've seen since the pandemic began. Um, through natural infection and through vaccine-mediated immunity. And so what we can anticipate is we're gonna be in a, in a honeymoon or maybe like you know, the eye of the hurricane uh, situation. As long as that vaccine immunity uh, lasts and naturally acquired immunity lasts, then we're gonna, we're gonna drop to very, very low levels of transmission. Another thing we have working in our favor is seasonality. What we've seen in the last two years of the pandemic is early May into early July, we have seen like the lowest transmission even before there was a vaccine. So I think the, the seasonality and the high levels of immunity are, are gonna put us into very, very low levels of transmission in the immediate future. And then the unknown is how long will immunity last? And um, you know, there, there's, 
indications going both ways. The, you know, the antibody levels seem to be dropping. Some of the experience with the booster during the pandemic suggests like the booster may partially wear off like over, over a period of four months. Um, so that there are some unknowns, but I think like with much lower transmission levels, which I think everyone expects, we're gonna be able to get a hugely better position you know, two weeks a month from now than we are today. That is certainly good news. A lot of the news that everybody I know wants to hear. I know everybody is just sick of this. Um, but Shelley's got a question that will kind of lead me into the to the next point of our discussion. Shelley says, will COVID-19 go away? So, Dr. Petrie, I mean, is, is it your belief and your understanding that we're going to just continue to live with COVID-19? Where do you see, um, you know, the future of this virus headed? Well, Shelley, I, I think that the there's the potential to completely eradicate COVID-19, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. Like, you know, Leanna and I, when we were talking, you know, a month or two ago about polio, you know, the world is very, very close to eradicating polio, which is another viral infection. But that's been done through 30 years of global immunization and, um, you know, surveillance. So, so it'll be a huge effort. And so until that is done, with COVID, we're, every winter, I, I would expect that we're going to see COVID just like we see influenza. Of course, we'll be in a, like a much better position because now we know like that mask and social distancing, hand washing works. We know that the vaccines work, and we now have pills to treat COVID. You know, the Molnupiravir and the Paxlovid, and so things will be like way better. But I think that this is going to be part of the fabric of our life, unfortunately. So we're, it's not going to be just cold and flu season every year. Now it's going to be cold flu and COVID season. Now, Dr. Petrie, I understand you travel globally, particularly with your work with polio, but I wonder what you may be able to share with us what you know about vaccine uptake worldwide. I know uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, the number of vaccination or the rate of vaccination here in the United States, but what might you be able to say about global vaccination rates against COVID-19? Well, Again, it's it's a glass half full. I think there's a lot of progress. Um, a lot of it has been led by WHO. Of course, the United States has has led as far as donating uh, doses of, of vaccines overseas, and we're seeing local production of the vaccine, like the Serum Institute in India, which is like the world's largest vaccine producer, is uh, making vaccine that has vaccinated most of India. So a, a lot of progress there. It, it's not at the levels that we're seeing in the U.S. yet. And we hear this over and over again, we're all in this together. And that's like literally true, because as long as there's populations that don't have like a, a super high level of vaccination, then we run the risk of like the next variant showing up. You know, we understand like that Omicron arose in Africa. Before Omicron, there was Delta that arose in India. And before Delta, there was Alpha that came up in the United Kingdom and so it's always going to be part of the problem. It's an enlightened self-interest that we help vaccinate the world. So that leads me to ask, I mean, do you anticipate uh, additional variants? And towards that end, um, we had a question from Rain who wanted to know, are we going to be able to travel? And, and I'll kind of take that a step further to Rain's question, um, you know, talking about international travel. We've, we've seen an uptake, but taking along this global perspective, what do you anticipate for travel? And, and um, you know, the, what is your expectation as far as additional variants? Sure. So, 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 Rain, I think we, we, we will see more variants. Of course, we're already seeing a variant of Omicron that's even more transmissible 
uh, than the original Omicron. And it only unfortunately takes one person who is infected for a variant to arise. And we know that for, for Omicron because that came from someone who had been chronically infected since the very beginning of the pandemic. So probably someone who had something wrong with their immune system so that they couldn't clear the virus and it gave the virus the opportunity to mutate um, in that, that individual over months to develop what we now know as Omicron. Same thing happened with Alpha in the United Kingdom, probably a single individual. So there's always that potential for a new variant to arise. And if it has an advantage over Omicron, for example, that it's better able to evade the uh, vaccines or naturally acquired immunity, uh, then we'll, we'll have a problem with it. Um, so I think clearly new variants, how important they'll be, maybe depending on how well we're able to keep up levels of immunity with, with, with vaccination. Travel's getting easier. I, I was, as, as Leanna was alluding to, I, I work in Bangladesh. And so I was in Bangladesh about three weeks ago. And you know, I wore one of those KN95 masks, which are like an N95, they're a little bit more comfortable. Um, and I didn't get infected. Um, which I wasn't too concerned about getting, getting super sick because being vaccinated and boosted, the vaccine works so well to keep you from being really severely ill. But I was worried about getting stranded, you know, for an additional 10 days of, of quarantine if I had gotten uh, infected. Um, but, you know, the, the, the rules are, are getting easier now. And so the United Kingdom used to require that you get tested two days after arrival. Uh, and that's that's been lifted now. And so I, I think we're going to find it easier and easier to travel. Um, and my my advice would be like, you know, look at the, the, the world map on the New York Times COVID web page and sort of see like where you're going is how high is the transmission. That'll help you to kind of judge like, do I need to be wearing a N95 mask or, or am I good to like, you know, eat indoors and restaurants and all the things that are fun about traveling. Um, and then I, I, a little bit of flexibility with travel right now. So just, you know, when I went to Bangladesh, I realized that, well, you know, I, this might not be a week trip. This might be almost a three-week trip. And then just, you know, there's a little bit of planning you can do, or at least like you're not like quite completely unawares that that's a possibility. That's, uh, that's good news. And especially for those of us who have family and friends abroad, the prospect of being able to travel in an informed way is certainly um, appealing. When it comes to uh, continuing to live with COVID-19, you know, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, there was a lot of comparisons initially, say, with, well, you know, we saw this 100 years ago with the Spanish influenza. Um, the pandemic that we've experienced, in your opinion, will this happen again? Will we have, at some point, another global pandemic? Well, I, I think that coronaviruses have this unfortunate tendency to do this. We call it a spillover event where it's the virus, these coronaviruses live naturally in bats. And then occasionally you're going to have the bat transmit the infection to a person, um, either directly or through a civet cat. And in the case of like the SARS original infections 20 years ago, um, or through camels with MERS like 10 years ago, uh, and then maybe through pangolins uh, th this time. And so there's always that potential for spillover events and, and, and COVID, excuse me, coronaviruses seem to be, you know, uh, notorious for doing this. Um, and so, yes, we are going to see new coronaviruses. I think that that's almost certain. Um, we'll be so much better prepared 
though. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of lessons learned about the importance of getting diagnostic tests out quickly. Um, the understanding of public health measures that are effective. And the um, mRNA vaccines are absolutely revolutionary. They're incredible to me, like the way that uh, those were um, uh, rolled out. And, and um, healthcare too, the, um, the ability to protect healthcare providers with you know, personal protective equipment um, so that um, you know, healthcare could go, go along uh, you know, unabated despite like the, the demands. And, you know, of course, like, you know, and the courageousness too, uh, seriously, of the, you know, the hospitalists, the respiratory therapists, the nurses, uh, who even before there was a vaccine that were providing all this care. I think, well, you know, we'll look back on these two years and say, wow, you know, health care and science really came through for us. And I think that that's going to help us with the inevitable, which is that there's going to be more spillover events of coronaviruses or other uh, infectious uh, diseases from from animals into people. So when we're talking about, you know, the, the practical day-to-day -day living with COVID-19, um, you mentioned how much we have learned and how much better aware we are of the way that these viruses are transmitted. And you mentioned the seasonality as well and the tools that we have to combat them. So, you know, taking a look at the next year, the next two years, um, you know, if we had to kind of create a picture of what the day in and out living, continuing to live with COVID-19 will be, what are sort of the practical mindsets that you think everyday people, um, you know, should kind of keep in mind? Well, I, I think number one is, is, is get vaccinated. And everybody's like sick of, of, of hearing that. But, you know, it, 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 it just it enables you to be just so much freer. Um, so if you are exposed to someone with COVID-19, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to go into quarantine to see whether you've gotten infected or not. You know, and that's, it's just, it's a lot. Of, and, and you don't live your life with like the possibility that you're going to get this infection and end up in a hospital. Um, so, so, so don't, don't forget, forget that. That's a really, really important in my mind. Um, but I'd say that in a few weeks, it's, it's going to be safe, like not to wear masks in the grocery store. It's going to be safe, like not to socially distance. It's going to be safe to go back to uh, life as we remembered it. Um, and then I think the only question is how long will that last? Because again, we have 250 million Americans that are vaccinated. We have 90 million that have had COVID, unfortunately. And you add those two numbers, that's almost everybody. Um, and so uh, as long as that immunity lasts, we're gonna be in a, in a good position. Um, and. I think like it, it remains to be seen, like whether we'll even need to have another booster or not. I know we have a couple of questions about boosters, but I want to ask you this question uh, first, Dr. Peacher. You mentioned the advancements, the rapid advancements in the mRNA vaccines in particular, um, the increased production of personal protective equipment. What have been sort of the other additional ripple effects uh, from COVID-19 and the ways that they may have influenced public health in the way that our, well, the way that our response um, to the pandemic may have influenced public health and other scientific advancements? Yes. Well, first of all, we, we've seen this tremendous interruption in transmission of influenza and polio just through the use of personal protective measures. You know, our, our vaccines against polio and flu have not improved. They're both like uh, quite good. And so just understanding that, that, that uh, the, the masking and the social distancing works to prevent other infectious diseases, one thing we've learned. Um, we've learned 
through these mRNA vaccines, a much, much better way of making a, a vaccine against a virus. The ways that we used to do it is that we would grow the virus and we would either let it get weakened by growing in the laboratory instead of growing in people, that's called attenuation, or we would inactivate the virus with formaldehyde or formalin and then use that to, um, to vaccinate someone. And, and both of those work, but the mRNA vaccines work much better. And part of the reason is, is that it, it actually kind of gets your body to make one piece of the, of the virus, the spike glycoprotein, and it's, it, and it's the real McCoy. It looks exactly like the spike glycoprotein that the virus makes. It's not been inactivated by formalin. It's not been attenuated by growth and culture. And so you get a much, much more robust immune response. Uh, and so that's gonna carry over. And so th there's other viral diseases that we need much better vaccines for, you know, starting with influenza. You know, Our flu vaccine on an average year is only 50% effective, yet saves tens of thousands of lives. So if that could be like 90% effective, there'd be that many more people saved from flu. Respiratory syncytial virus is a, is a big problem with children being admitted to the hospital with croup or asthma. In adults, it can cause a severe disease. We have no vaccine right now, and the mRNA vaccines are going to help there. Um, and dengue, uh, too, which is an important mosquito-borne virus uh, in throughout the world, unfortunately not in the United States, but a lot of places you would like to go to travel, um, um, th that's going to advance vaccines against dengue as well. So the vaccines, so the, the public health measures, one thing we've learned, the vaccines are going to carry over to other, other diseases. And then finally, this ability to make therapeutics so rapidly. And so we learned like from Ebola um, that, that our best medicine for Ebola was these monoclonal antibodies against the Ebola spike like a protein. And so we were able to use that knowledge to rapidly make you know, the first effective therapy for um, uh, the COVID virus, which was monoclonal antibodies. And so we'll, now we know that. And so if there's another pandemic that happens, and let's hope not, but if it does, um, we'll be able to make these antibodies against the, vir the, the virus spike like a protein or whatever virus it is and move quickly. And then we've also learned if you really apply science, just how quickly therapeutics can be made. And so the molnupiravir, which inhibits the RNA polymerase of the virus or the Paxlovid that inhibits a thing called a protease that's important in the virus are now available you know, and, and, and present in a lot of pharmacies. Um, and so, there's other viral diseases which we have no therapy. Respiratory syncytial virus, I just mentioned. Um, dengue, we have no therapy. There's no reason that we don't have any therapy except for like just apply the same science uh, and will, and we will have uh, antiviral therapies for some of these other plagues of, of modern mankind. Which is really exciting. And so it, it sounds like, like you said, that these coronaviruses in particular have a propensity to um, spread, you know, between animals and humans pretty easily and therefore globally as well. Um, even though in the moment it felt like forever, the, the COVID-19 vaccines really in the history of, of, you know, modern science were developed at lightning speed. So do you feel that based on the advancements that we've made with these particular coronavirus vaccines in the last couple of years that whatever next coronavirus comes along, a vaccine development could come that much faster? 
Yes. And, you know, Leanna, like one of the advances with these mRNA vaccines was they made a modification in that spike-like protein. You hear about it, it locks it into one confirmation uh, that's very effective for making a good antibody response. And we learned how to do that from the original SARS virus 20 years ago. So that's like, that's one example of even like when this happened, we already knew a, a fair amount of like what to do because the coronavirus had done this in the year 2000 and then again, the year uh, 2010. Uh, we do have a couple of people uh, asking about um, booster shots um, as well and additional vaccines. And you had mentioned that, you know, that continues to be one of the questions that lingers is the the strength of or the longevity of the immunity. Um, you had mentioned that we're doing so much better at, at um, protecting the older population who was initially the most vulnerable, um, but that there's still more to do on, on the vaccine front for the younger, for children. Um, what are you anticipating? Um, what questions do you still have? And, you know, for people who are considering, you know, I've got a couple questions about, do I need to get a fourth shot? Um, what would be, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I think there, there's still some catch up to do. You have those 250 million Americans that have been vaccinated, only about 100 million have received their booster. And so that's definitely a good idea. If you're if you're in that group that's gotten vaccinated and haven't received your booster yet, uh, I, I'd recommend doing that. Um, it, it not only uh, increases the effectiveness of the original vaccine against this new variant Omicron, so it, it's it's better. You're better protected from going into the hospital if you've had the booster than not. You also make a better antibody response. And so the, the booster is, is increasing like the, the number of antibodies, the kinds of antibodies you're making against that spike like a protein. So you're, you're, you're better protected like from a couple standpoints uh, with it. Um, so, and, and then ch vaccinating children, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate that, that we only have 25% of the five to 11 year olds in this country that, that have been vaccinated. Um, just, um, you know, if I, my youngest granddaughter is too young, like to get the vaccine, if she was five years old, oh boy, I would be big, big proponent of her being protected from it. Now she's starting preschool this week, actually. Um, and, you know, it, it, and she's gotten her flu vaccine, so she's protected against flu, but she's not protected against COVID. And that's, that's you know, unfortunate for her. And, and, and of course, like, you know, it's a a risk of being a parent now of a young child is, is, is contracting COVID from your child. Absolutely. Uh, well, this has been so fascinating and I think very enlightening and maybe uh, perhaps a little bit alleviating for many people as we continue right. to mm -hmm. consider the future of COVID. While I have you, because I know it is of particular interest, I want to ask you a couple of questions about your polio research. Um, and uh, I know, obviously, when we had spoken, um, you know, several months ago, you had noted that the uh, work that was being done uh, in against COVID-19 was having some good residual effect on all reducing polio. Based on your recent research, um, what are you finding and, and um, what do you think, uh, you know, when it comes to worldwide eradication of polio? Obviously, we've done a very good job here in the United States, but it is still a problem for other countries and other parts of the world. Um, what are you seeing on that front and, and what are you hopeful about there? Well, I'd say first, Leanna, that, that, that you're right. So worldwide, we have eradicated two of the three kinds of polio. And so that's that's amazing, and that's 
a lot of thanks to the Rotary Club International that, that supported that for 30 years, and the World Health Organization and the Gates Foundation. So we have one kind of polio, it's called wild poliovirus number one, and that is endemic. That means that it's causing new infections uh, within, all, within only two countries, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, so that's tremendous progress. And the number of new cases that we're seeing in those two countries is very low. There's been only three or four infections total in the last year and a half. Although they, they do environmental surveillance for that, just like we do for COVID. And it's clearly that there's much more polio in the circulation in those two countries than children that are getting paralyzed. But that's, that's progress. Um, you know, there's ever two steps forward, there's always like one step backwards. And you may have seen like in Malawi in Africa was the first case of paralytic polio in the last five years for the entire continent, because the entire continent of Africa, just like North America and South America is free of all three kinds of polio. But that case in Malawi was imported from Pakistan. And so we, as long as we have areas where there's you know, some endemic transmission, there's always the risk that a traveler from that area or a visitor to that area will acquire it and, and, and bring it home. Um, so not, we're not there with eradication, but uh, tremendous, tremendous progress. That is some more good news that we absolutely love to hear. Uh, Dr. Petrie, so much uh, to talk about, um, but is any final thoughts that you want to share, or if there's one thing that people can take away from our conversation today, what is it that you would like people to know about the future of COVID-19? Well, I'd like to thank everyone that's listening because we're all taxpayers and, and all of you are supporting the research that allowed us to, to um, respond so quickly to this pandemic, you know, that dates back to the polio uh, pandemic. You know, I think that my parents, probably your parents or grandparents were convinced of the importance of science when they saw like that, that scientists working in a lab could make a vaccine that could prevent their child from being paralyzed. I think that we've, I think probably most of us listening have had like a tragic loss of a family member from COVID-19. But I think we can also know that because we have all invested in science. We've supported uh, scientific research um, that we're much, much better off than, than we could have been. And we're actually now entering into a, you know, an era where COVID-19 is going to be an endemic and no longer a pandemic problem in the U.S. My guest today has been Dr. William Petrie with the Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health at the University of Virginia. Dr. Petrie, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. And Leanna, thank you for all the work that you're doing for education about COVID-19. Thank you very much. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. I'm Leanna Scacchetti. Our editor is Ben Raquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.